Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Chris Ailman, the chief investment officer of the $220 billion pool of capital for California State Teachers Retirement System, or CalSTRS. Chris joined CalSTRS back in 2000 after four years as CIO of the Washington State Investment Board and 11 years as CIO of the Sacramento County Employees Retirement System. He is a legend in the business, and the list of accolades for his work is longer than the list of my podcast episodes. 
our conversation dives in with the flawed business model of government running a money management firm, the looming retirement crisis, and challenges of governance and communication with a rotating board. We then turn to the inner workings at CalSTRS, including the use of internal and external managers, managing a long-term asset allocation cruise ship, inflation-sensitive investments, risk-mitigating strategies, private equity for a huge pool of capital, the Innovation Lab, ESNG, and building influence among large asset owners. Most of my episodes are only lightly edited, but I barely had to touch this conversation with Chris. He is articulate, chock-full of wisdom, and as transparent as they come. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris Ailman. Chris, thanks for joining me. I'm glad to be here. How did you originally get started in the business? Boy, that's a long story. I was in college in the 80s. Before there were computers, Wall Street was uh, hardly known on the West Coast. I was going to be a financial accountant, interested in management information and that stuff. And my mom inherited an account at Dean Witter, a name that has disappeared. And we had a blast uh, going in a meeting, and I thought, this is really interesting to manage money, to follow stocks and trade. Took a couple investment classes at my university where we actually did real hard financial analysis of opening a prospectus and dissecting a company. And sadly, that is a very lost art most of the time, but actually started on the sell side. So started back with Dean Witter, got into financial planning, got into small corporations and their retirement plans. And I decided to go into government just for five years to kind of build some stability. I was tired of being in the roller coaster of the banking side. So went on the buy side and I found I actually liked it. And it surprised me. I enjoyed it. And I have shocked to say that I've stayed in government for over 30 years because, boy, it's a flawed business model when you look at it as a way to run a money management firm. But I've enjoyed the challenge. A flawed business model. Oh, yeah. Why don't you dive right in there? <laughs> you bet. No, I've been pretty vocal about this for years, and it gets attention every once in a while. But when you think about running a money manager, you know, particularly here in New York, there are partnerships, there are large public firms, there's a variety of sizes. But you would never pick government as a business model to run almost any business. I've often challenged people, what is it that government does well in that structure? But we're trying to run, I'm trying to run a money management firm inside the body of a governmental entity, and it is constantly a challenge. There's some research papers that now are probably over 15 years old that say it costs about 40 basis points a year. I've had a lot of pushback from my board. That seems like a huge number on our amount of assets. But frankly, it takes me almost nine months to hire a money manager because of the procurement rules. I have to use the same rules that Caltrans uses to buy cement or somebody else buys equipment. I have to use that to hire money managers. They don't recognize it as a professional service, which is very frustrating. It takes me a long time to retain people. All of my staff, including myself, are civil servants. And so there's just numerous little things that come up that make it difficult to operate and I always like to say it doesn't take a Harvard grad to figure out it's the flawed business model, but I'm just dumb enough to keep trying to make it work as efficient as possible. And if you look at it in the USA, the endowments were the first to recognize they couldn't operate within a university structure. 
and most of the endowments were then incorporated and moved off campus, near campus, but off campus. Corporations did the same thing. Many of them took their retirement division and said, this is a money management operation. We need to move it external. And many of them then spun it out to become a money management and make money from it. And the Canadians adopted that model. Most of the sovereign wealth funds, when they look at this space, the first thing they do is look at the models that are out there and say, you know what? We're going to operate it like Tomasic GIC is an independent company away from government, oversight by government, but away from government. The USA is about the only place where particularly the pension plan asset management side is still very much part of the governmental entity. We're definitely in the org chart under the executive branch of California state government, right there with CalPERS and a whole bunch of consumer services departments. Is there something specific about the U.S. system that prevents the U.S. government from evolving the way that these other types of institutions or the non-U.S. governments have? Well, I wouldn't say it's uh, U.S. specific, but you recognize in USA we don't react to something until it absolutely breaks. We won't repair something until there's a crisis and then we wake up. And I've often said that at some point someone's going to look at this and say, hey, this is crazy, a flawed model. We need to move it external and operate it. Oddly enough, Delaware is the only place that you've seen that that happened in the 80s and nobody followed suit. There have been a few places, Missouri, Oregon, that talked about it, but then didn't go full throttle with it. So I think at some point there will be a recognition and just kind of a wake-up moment that, well, yeah, that absolutely makes sense. You privatize it. But we're not there yet. And I think the reason the USA model is different is simply because we're first. It evolved into this structure in the 70s and 80s in a government entity, and nobody thought to make it different. It's the entities around the world, the groups that have started from scratch, that have had a chance to look at the best models and move them into public-private partnerships. There is this question of whether there is a pending pension crisis in the U.S., and particularly on the retirement side. Is this crisis coming in such a way that it eventually will reform the system? And it's not a rumor. I mean, we get hit with it every day. Unfortunately, we clip all the news clippings, and I just see it. It's overwhelming, the discussion. But I would say to people, it is similar to arguing that we have a mortgage crisis and that we have a lot of mortgage debt in America, but nobody worries about it because we're going to pay it off over 30 years. And these retirement funds will be paid off over 30 years. The crisis is recognizing what the real cost of them is. Most people have been underpaying that retirement system or underpaying your mortgage. And I've often said to legislators, try that for a while. Underpay your bank. Now, they will reach out and grab you. And in a retirement system, nobody does. The retirement system would complain, but quietly. But if you underpay your mortgage for 10, 20 years, you have a looming debt that you have to pay off over the next period. The difference with the retirement fund and the reason it's not a crisis in my view, in front of our face, is you have 30 years to pay this off. And oh, by the way, even when you get to the end of that 30 years, you have even more time because these are in perpetuity. So it's a matter of paying the right amount and developing a plan to pay them off. And that bill is expensive, not due to the investment returns, due to the longevity. And then just management of the liability side. I've seen too many governmental entities where mayors or city councils, county councils, even states, when they get in a negotiation with an employee group and that employee group wants a raise, they offer them a retirement benefit instead because they know that's out into the future and they don't have to pay it now. Well, at some point, those benefits add up. 
And it's on their minds simply because of demographics. You get the baby boom retiring. And that's just a huge swath of people that are now hitting the retirement funds, drawing on them. Many of the funds like ours are now very mature and have a negative cash flow, but it's manageable. You've got the Gen X behind them that are just as big or bigger. And so if you look at it as you've got to pay for longevity, you've got to pay for the benefits, but I think it's absolutely reasonable. And when amortized over 30 years, most of those benefit payments are actually reasonable. And some states in the middle of the country did not fund their pension, even 50% of what they were supposed to pay in for years. The term pension holiday. No one talks about a mortgage payment holiday. No one would dare try that, but they do that all the time in pensions. So you don't see it as a pervasive crisis, but there could be pockets where certain states are more poorly funded than others. Oh, absolutely. Certain states that are very poorly funded, not just more. They are, in some cases, close to 20% funded. 20% funded or 20% underfunded? 20% funded. Wow. We're 62% funded. And sadly, it seems to be the teacher plans. Public school teachers around the country, and some people have argued that maybe that's gender-based, public employee unions tended to be more vocal, and the public plans for employees tended to be better contributed to, where the teacher plans tended to be underfunded. So most of the time, when you look at plans around the country, it's the teacher plan that's the most underfunded. And some of them, yes, to amortize it over 30 years is going to be even too painful. They're going to probably have to amortize that catch-up over 40 years to do it properly. But that's what's leading to this fight. Most of the time when I talk to people about the so-called pension crisis, it really comes down to their philosophical view about whether it should be a defined benefit or a defined contribution. That's a different discussion. I look at it as it's a benefit. It's an employee benefit. What do you need to build your workforce and attract your workforce? Do you need to provide dental? Do you need to provide vision coverage? Do you need to provide a retirement plan that rewards longevity? Or do you want a retirement plan that rewards mobility and turnover? There are some occupations where turnover is needed or even widely accepted. I'd argue that in teaching and education, you actually want longevity. And so it's better to offer a retirement that's a defined benefit and so that you encourage people to work in the field for a long, long time. So I think people that are in this debate and fight need to step back and look at it. And I can argue that we actually have, instead of a pension crisis, we have a huge looming retirement crisis in America, which is in the 401k market. We're celebrating the birthday of the 401k this year. And when you look at that, most of those are grossly underfunded for what people need to retirement on. And we're going to see a crisis of people, the latter end of the baby boomer, pulling out on their 401k and retiring into poverty. There's a happy thought. Yeah, huh? that's a happy thought. <laughs> Let's dive in a little bit. You mentioned that despite the flawed business model of managing these assets, that you're still fighting the fight. What have you learned about governance that keeps you in it and keeps you trying? I think the key with governance is a clear definition of roles and responsibilities. All the funds I've worked at, which have been three, been very policy-driven and very clear and concise policies, not notebooks full. I'll take it back to what most people can relate to a financial planner. You come into a financial planner and you want to write a plan and be clear with them so that they understand your risk tolerance and your risk appetite. And what I find too often in 
governmental plans is that they actually haven't defined that well. And the risk appetite and tolerance shifts board to board as elections happen and things turn over. But for us within governance, it really has to be clear about what role the pension board should play, what decisions they should make, what decisions should they delegate to their professional staff, what's the oversight, what's the reporting back. When we get those roles clear and everybody's on the same page, it can work fairly efficiently within that model. But I have seen the average tenure of a state pension CIO is only four years. And that has been true since the 1980s. And I think the reason for the constant turnover is oftentimes the governance is unclear. And they run into problems about what decisions the board should make, what should they delegate to the CIO, what should the staff be doing. And if you look at what we do, it's very intentional, very specific, maybe almost too much planning. As I always like to say, we like to plan on what we're going to do, tell them when we're doing it, and then report back what we did. But that's a whole part about running people's money and gaining their confidence. So a lot of that comes down to communication. You have a lot of constituents. So you have the board, you have a portfolio and a team, and you have all of the teachers in the state of California. How do you go about communicating with the various constituents? Well, almost a million constituents. We do a lot of communication with the board. And what I've realized is we've had to expand the communication channels. In the past, it was all just written materials. But now we actually shoot videos for the board. We shoot videos for the membership and put those out there. One of the reasons I'm here, as you and I have talked earlier, is because I want to learn about how to do podcasts, because that's going to be our next medium. And we've realized, I have said to the staff, particularly to the younger Gen X people, they need to figure out how to write an agenda item that can go on Instagram, because we have some members that will only look at that. And we need to be agnostic as to the median, but just get the communication out there constantly. And you're right. A big part of governance is communicating and making sure everybody understands, but you have to have their attention. So it's easy to get the board's attention because they want to be up to date and get a quick summary of what's going on. The membership is an interesting challenge. So almost a million members. I can tell you firsthand, because my daughter is a public school teacher in California, that for the teachers that are about 35 and under, they know our name, but they're not quite sure what the initials stand for. They've seen the word CalSTRS because it shows up on their paycheck, and they know that money goes out to it, but they don't even quite know what the initials mean. And it is so hard to get their attention to say, you need to care about the next 30 or 40 years. And the average 40-year-old teacher at least knows what the initials mean. The average 50-year-old not only knows the initials, but probably even knows somebody on staff and has called in. And I can tell you, the average 60-year-old knows somebody by name, can tell me the formula benefit, and knows everything about it. And that's just a reality. The 401k market faces that too. How do you get that young worker to pay attention? One of my favorite ideas that somebody came up with is when they signed up for the 401k, they gave them an app that, I don't remember what it was called, but you aged yourself. You took a selfie and it aged you 40 years. And that way you could relate to the future you. You could think about yourself as, I'm going to be 60 someday. What do I want? You can show that 20-year-old what we call the ski slope. Start saving now a little bit. It compounds over time. And look at how when it gets out there to 30, 40 years, it just shoots up to a million dollars. But it is so hard to get them to start and to care. And I often say to people that come to me when they're 50 or 40 and say, hey, I want to save for retirement. I'm like, hey, that's great. 
should have started 30 years ago or 20 years ago. <laughs> it's the time value of money. That's the power. But you're touching on an interesting challenge, which is the teachers care about specific issues. How do we get their attention? How do we tell them what we're doing? When I go out and talk to young teachers, they frequently say, well, I know you take money out of my account and somebody up in Sacramento, somebody in government does something to it. And I want to say, look, we've got a mini Wall Street up there. It's not just government. You know, we look like Anybody in New York, we look like a small version of BlackRock or anybody else, top-notch investment professionals. We run half the fund in-house, $110 billion, which would be a huge money manager anywhere else. And we have to triple their money while they contribute it over time and grow it so that they can retire on it. And getting their attention on that is going to be a constant challenge. So let's turn to the investment side of the equation. You mentioned having a bunch of policies of the government's. And in fact, a cursory look at your website, there's something like 20 different written policies for every asset class and strategy, everything you could conceive of. How do you start the process of communicating, say, with the board about the investment program? I've actually been thinking a lot about that because with the midterms, that typically is when the states have their election cycle. And so for us, new governor, new treasurer, new superintendent of public instruction, about half of my board is going to turn over and I will see new faces up there, at least five to six new faces out of 12 in February. And what we're doing is taking them right back to square one, which is the board adopted a set of investment beliefs. So here are the eight things the board before you firmly believes in. Do you agree with those or do you need to change some of those? That helps give them stability. What are those current beliefs? Well, things like costs matter. Markets are generally highly efficient, but diversification is the best way to reduce risks. We believe that ESG is an important factor and needs to be put into investment decisions. We want alignment of financial interest with our money managers. We recognize that there's an illiquidity risk premium in uh, long-term illiquid assets, and we believe in internal management, that it can be efficient if run effectively. So within those core beliefs, you've then got an investment policy. I'm going to present that at a very high level. And I also actually provide them with a history paper that goes all the way back. The investment office at CalSTRS was only started in 1983. It was actually born out of CalPERS at the time. While STRS has been around 107 years, the investment office is fairly new. So I want them to understand the history of how that portfolio has grown, how the office has grown. Before you start taking charge of something, you kind of have to know where it came from. But that's going to be a big part of our discussion, which is getting them to understand their legal framework. What's their fiduciary rule? What is the state constitution already mandate, which is to diversify the assets, keep the costs low, and it's for the exclusive benefit of the members. And that's probably the hardest thing to learn is that when you come into that room, you might come from, I'll say, an elected official or a member. You come in from a different area, but you have to take that hat off and put on the hat that you're a fiduciary for a trust fund. And you have to think about what's best for everyone in the trust fund, not just the taxpayers and the state, but the employers, the school districts and the members and consider that. And that's always a challenge for people. So as these political regimes change, what you laid out as core beliefs, pretty much anybody listening to this is going to say, oh, yeah, that's common knowledge. 
How much pushback do you get from people who may not come from an investment background about, well, those were the core beliefs of the Republicans. Now Democrats are running the House. No, I think when you say most people, you're right, most people. But I have had some of those other people. <laughs> I have had trustees who came in and said, you know, that's great, but I don't believe in modern portfolio theory. I'm absolutely convinced that we can pick the best 8, 10 stocks and we don't need all this diversification. Basically, they're saying, I think I can be like Warren Buffett. So we have to have a long dialogue. And, you know, what's important, and I think the hardest part for people to realize about our jobs as CIOs, we don't work for one single person. We work for a chorus of 12. And while you work with them individually, you have to listen to the chorus. You can't listen to 12 solos because you are not going to meet their needs. And I've realized in those circumstances, it's talking to that member, getting to understand, taking them all the way back to Markowitz. Harry Markowitz is still alive, I'm proud to say, lives in San Diego, California. Taking them all the way back to modern portfolio theory of Markowitz, bringing them up through Fama French and Bill Sharp's work, showing them the academic work behind it that gives them the basis for the theory and gets them comfortable. But that does create a challenge. We've had board members that just their risk appetite is fixed income. They want to be very conservative. They don't like taking risks. They don't like seeing the portfolio go up and down in value and talking about the funding. And it gets back to, okay, if you don't think you can earn that kind of rate of return, then you need to contribute more. There's only two flows into a retirement fund, contributions and investment earnings. I have had other trustees who believe wholeheartedly in private markets and then others who don't believe in it at all. And that becomes an interesting challenge in a dialogue. I was at a fund where I would say they could not get enough private equity and real estate. Every transaction we brought them, they said not only yes, but double the amount of the investment. If you've worked with retail customers or small institutions, you realize you're a money manager, an asset manager. You meet the client's needs. What is your risk appetite? Where do you want to be? We can design a portfolio. Understand the dynamics and the volatility you're inheriting, and you have to be comfortable with that. If I picked on a few of the things you've pointed out that are important and that are pervasively accepted for your constituents, low cost, there's friction in making changes in the portfolio, you have a fair amount of internal management, it would be logical to say, this is a huge pool of capital, it's a flawed business model, we should just index this. We have had that discussion. We actually, on a regular basis, have that discussion because there's no reason to broadly diversify into alternative strategies or certainly even active management if it doesn't exceed what the index provides. And particularly in active management, large cap U.S. equities, we're constantly having that debate. I'm having that debate with my staff. In non-U.S. developed markets, we have a debate about how much is efficient and what's the inefficiency. Even in emerging markets, my staff wants to argue with me about the level of efficiency. So when you look at us, I would argue we actually are fairly passive. 70% of our U.S. equity is indexed. We run it in-house, but it's indexed. And even then, about another 15% of that is in what now is called smart beta. I like to call other beta because I don't want to think my first beta is dumb beta. But it's an alternative beta strategy, so not high trading also, volume. That's also in-house. That's also in-house, and most of it is in-house as well. There are clearly things we can do very efficiently in-house with our staff. There are some things we can't do, and we're not going to try to do it. 
But frankly, we can run money at one-tenth the cost of hiring somebody here on Wall Street to do the same thing. And indexing at our size is actually very inexpensive. But it really shows you that by having the internal capabilities, we've got scale. And I like to point out BlackRock, SSGA, State Street Global are great firms, but they have multiple clients. I've got an index team who only has one client and five indexes to pay attention to. And so they could be very sharp and very attentive. And sure enough, we're able to add a little bit of incremental value on top of that. Nine U.S. equity in the developed markets were 50% indexed. In emerging markets, we're 100% active. That's where my staff actually has argued about indexing a little bit. So it's an interesting challenge. Fixed income, we're an enhanced index. Nobody truly indexes fixed income. But we're fairly close to the index we use external management where we think it can pay for itself and add value. And that's where the struggle has been. As we all know, active management is really challenged in this last decade because of the strength of the market. Mostly the Federal Reserve easing just created a risk on trade. So for us, we're constantly having that debate about where is the value I only want to get a net return above the cost. And sure enough, when you look at it, the cost has eaten up almost all of the alpha in active strategies. In the what I call the diversifying strategies, when you think of real estate, private equity, that's got to be what is the alternative in the public markets. And we're constantly gauging it against that. The challenge is it's a really long-term investment. We think we should get an illiquidity premium for doing a 10, 15, 20-year investment. But there are going to be regimes like this last 10 years where it's pretty hard to beat anything in the U.S. public equity market. What's that asset allocation structure across assets? Right now, we're about 54% global equity, and we are truly global, so about 50-50 U.S. and non-U.S., We've got probably 12% right now in fixed income, and that's mostly domestic, but we've got a little bit of universal global fixed income. 12% in real estate, 8% in private equity, 9% in a new asset class called risk mitigating strategies, which is an asset class most people haven't heard of before, but it really was an effort to look at what can we do to diversify the growth side. So it's a collection of strategies that are designed to lose less money in a down market and to definitely protect and actually probably make a little bit of money in an 08 or a 73, 74 kind of a market. And then we've got a growing portfolio of inflation sensitive assets because we're concerned at some point inflation is going to come back and be a problem. So let's work backwards through these inflation sensitive, internal or external? Mixture. Because you recognize we've studied it for a number of years. There's not any constant driver of what creates an inflation boom. And we've looked back, it could be cost, push, or wage pull. But it could also come from other areas in the commodity space particularly. So it's a basket of tips, which are internally managed. Makes sense. Fixed income instrument. We've got a desk. But we look at anything that has some correlation to inflation. So we've done some commodities. There, we've done some commodity swaps, so we internally manage the other side of the swap, the collateral side. But externally, we've got uh, timber. We have some infrastructure, which we recognize isn't totally correlated, but should over time, if we had a prolonged inflation curve, have some correlation. Uh, We've looked at farmland as an option of adding that in. Things that just aren't as correlated to typical stocks but have some inflation. We know at the beginning of an inflation regime, it's actually good for global equity. Yeah. 
and it will do well. But what we're worried about is that value erosion over a long, broad time period. How big is that bucket today? Right now, the target for that is 4%. We're only at 2 And I've said to the board, 4% is, frankly, isn't going to move the needle. That's one of the challenges at our size, which is having to put a huge amount of money to work to actually make an impact. That'll be a debate coming up in our asset allocation study in 2019 is how much should that inflation component be? And in that type of situation where you want to put it to work thoughtfully, but there are proxies you could do with the internal team to get it at four and then talk about it. How do you decide, well, we're at two today. We like how we're doing it. We could quickly get it to four. might not be optimal. Or we're just going to do it piece by piece. It starts with a discussion with the board. So they set a long-term asset allocation target on what I like to describe us for listeners. Think of a big pension plan like ours as a giant cruise ship. I like to think of that because it's a happier vision. The board picks a, a spot on the horizon. The challenge is we actually never, ever reach it. We're constantly out in the ocean sailing. But our job as the staff is to decide whether it's full speed ahead because it's smooth sailing and winds at our back or whether we need to batten down the hatches. And so they've picked a long-term target of 4% in inflation sensitive. But we came back and said, you know, inflation is just not on the horizon. And the Fed's struggling to get it to 2%. In fact, at one point, we ramped up to where we had a full 2% all in tips. And within the board's long-term goals, we have a tactical group within the investment office that meets quarterly to talk about risk on, risk off, and then a much smaller group that talks about risk. And we meet actually monthly, sometimes ad hoc weekly. And it was one of those meetings that one of the other staff in another asset class said, you know, if tips are negative, why don't we sell them? Why do we have them at all? And we did. So we sold out the entire portfolio when they were at negative yields and went to the board and said, it just doesn't make sense to be there yet. But we are now building it up. Obviously, the Fed's approaching and passing that 2% goal for inflation. That's still incredibly low. And so we're just building that portfolio over time. And that'll be an active debate in the next asset allocation, as I said. When it takes that long to move, you've got 2% today in inflation sensitive moving towards 4%. you have got 12% in fixed income. And depending on the character of that, those could offset each other just in and of themselves. True. And that's part of the debate that we have. That's why I bring those groups together at the senior level to talk about what are we doing in fixed income. Fixed income can also build a lot of credit risk into the portfolio and suddenly look like an equity. Like I've got some peers I know that are near us that, that frankly take tons of equity risk in their fixed income portfolio. And when you get volatility in the equity market, it hurts. I want it to be an anchor to windward. So when we're concerned about risk in the portfolio, my fixed income team is dialing down the credit exposure and the credit level in the portfolio. And so that's part of that active debate is actually them working together. It's not uncommon to see actually our inflation-sensitive head down in the fixed income group for their morning talk just to keep gauging that market and what's going on. Well, let's turn to this risk-mitigating bucket, which is among the more interesting things you're doing. How did you start thinking about where you wanted to implement in the markets in that bucket? You know, it actually started all the way back in 2012. The board had one of the goals that we did for the investment committee was to look at alternative strategies. And it was a recognition back then that interest rates were gliding towards zero. Who knew they would go through zero? But interest rates were in a constant decline. We were consistently lowering our exposure to fixed income. We had gone from 
20%, 25% to 20% down to 15, and then now the new target of only 12. And we knew we needed diversification in the plan, especially after 08. So we spent a lot of time really studying 2008. We thought it was a 1, 1.5% likely occurrence and realized that, you know what, in this day and age, it's probably closer to a 4% occurrence. And for the listeners, that's in essence, instead of a 100-year flood, we realized it's a 60- or 70-year flood. So you don't run out and slap a bunch of insurance or move away, but you do pay attention to that risk and try and find ways to balance it. So we spent a lot of time studying different strategies, realized there, of course, isn't one silver bullet to take for a pension plan that will solve that problem. But when you look at our fixed income at about 12 and then risk mitigating at about nine, we're back to about a 20% level of what I would call diversifying assets. And when we looked into that bucket, we really looked at it comes down to trading strategies because you're trying to find opportunities that will shift away from equities and will cut their losses quickly. We looked at catastrophe bonds. We looked at options under options writing, a number of different strategies. We even, I remember in 07 being called into the Department of Finance to ask myself and the counterpart at CalPERS to price out buying puts for the entire portfolio. And we came back and said, you know, it'll cost you 300 basis points on the return. Would have been a good move at the time had we known how bad it was going to be. But we've looked at all those kinds of strategies and put together right now four strategies, but we're constantly looking at more. And particularly in this day and age, when you look at the market that declines, while normally it was a flight to the dollar and a flight to the 30-year bond, it's interesting that around the world you're starting to see a flight sometimes to yen other places as a safe haven. And we're going to keep researching that and looking at that. I often say to the board, think of our risk mitigating. When you have those, what I call left-hand tail risks in life, your car, your life, your fire insurance, your home, you buy insurance and you're happy to write that premium check. I often joke, you know, you're actually happy to write your life insurance premium check because the option is everybody collected on you. So this, we don't want to just have something where we're losing or paying for insurance. We want to break even while we're there. But it really is designed not for an October like this year. It's designed for a bear market, for 0102, 73, 74. It might kick in in something like an 87. But even in 87, it was so fast and so short term. It really is designed to be for what we would consider a traditional 20% bear market, but especially for the deep declines of the 30 and 40%, which should probably happen, like I said, about once every 70 years. So what are those four strategies you came upon? The biggest chunk of them actually is 30-year U.S. Treasury bonds, because that is the flight to quality. The next largest chunk is also of equal size is CTAs, which are trend-following managers. So it's a trading strategy. They've got the whole world to trade in, but they're going to be looking at movements and momentum and shifting, therefore, away from U.S. equities or global equities at different sequences. We put a little bit of global macro in there, which obviously is really you're trusting on people's talents. But what we found is while they tend to react a little bit late to declines like that in the market, they actually give you some upside. So they reduce the cost of the insurance. And then the smallest slice of it is risk premium strategies, and we're just starting to deploy that. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle. 
helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist, netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. When you do the pieces of that externally, how do you balance this goal for low cost when some of these strategies have kind of higher cost? Oh, Lord, they're expensive. One is obviously we can use our size to negotiate very aggressively. I have said for probably over five years that two and 20 is gone and that's been broken. Unfortunately, small plans still have to pay that, but larger plans have gone through that. And we, I think we're coming into the market at a very good time when everybody else is getting out of the market. So many people had rushed into, quote, hedge funds as an asset class and then been immensely disappointed while they were moving out of these. And I always like to point out to teachers, we're not going into hedge funds. I don't consider that an asset class. It's just a business model structure. It's 22-odd strategies. We're using two specific strategies. So I think our size was an advantage. We've also looked at some of these, particularly things like trend following. Can we build some of those formulas in-house? Can we do some of those things in-house? There aren't pure passive strategies that replicate those, but we want to look at different ways that we can potentially do those things at a lower cost structure. Let's move on to private equity. Hits on a couple of things you mentioned, illiquidity, premium, Cost becomes an issue. Oh, it's expensive as yeah. hell. 8%'s not nothing. Have you invested in that area? The challenge within private equity is that it is such a long time to build up that portfolio. There is a secondary market, but it's not that deep and it's not of significant size. So within private equity, you actually, I think, have to be a stable investor over time. You can't time the market. You can't pick your EBITDA multiples because you're investing in partnerships, which then have their own five-year investment period. And so I've worked at two funds that have had fairly large private equity portfolios. And it's not so much the percentage of the fund. I think it's literally a, a dollar amount you can put to work efficiently in private equity. If you've got a billion-dollar private equity portfolio, you can be really nimble. You can be very focused on venture. You could do middle market buyouts. When you get into the 20 and 30 and $40 billion private equity portfolios, you're just going to be exposed to mega buyouts. A good friend, Bond French, always said it's the hierarchy of size, and it's a challenge when it gets bigger, not an efficiency, because you're suddenly just exposed to the mega buyouts, dominate your portfolio. You can invest in venture, but you can't really get enough of it to really move the needle very much. So for us, it's a consistent budget of investing over time. How did we get there? We started at about 2 and 4%, built that portfolio consistently over time. Like most pension plans, we invested 
too much in 05, 06, 07 because we could. That was suddenly the dawn of the $10 billion funds and you could write a big check. And so with the more money being put to work then, and then obviously 08, 09, nobody even raised a fund. It was very hard to put money to work. You suddenly have this bulge, a pig in the python. And now we're all finally working through that to where you're a steady state. But we commit about $6 billion a year into private equity. We started back at about $3 billion in 2010, 11, 12, and now we're ramping up. Our goal actually would be to be about 13% in private equity. So we're constantly searching the secondary market, but prices are just too high to be buying in. We think that it's a very valuable area. It's a long-term investment. The question is, are you going to get a premium over the public markets? Back when I started in private equity in the 90s, you could get 500 over the public markets. Then it narrowed to about 300. And now the debate today is at 150 net of cost. And we're really dissecting that cost more and more and reporting it. And people are realizing that with an 80-20 carried interest structure and the fees on private equity for committed capital, you're probably paying somewhere around 25% of the profits to maybe as much as 30 or in some cases 40% of the profits. That's awfully expensive for asset management. You're not going to break that model. That's just been out there 30 years. But what you're going to see is more people come in and disintermediate that market and offer a compelling product because it's got to be compelling that's at a lower cost structure and a more efficient model. Because even within private equity, I would argue it's actually a little bit short term. Private equity has a five-year investment cycle, a four-year investment cycle, then a seven-year harvesting, and the entire fund is liquidated, usually around year 10, 11, 12. And what we're finding is they're selling a private firm, and it's another private equity fund that's buying it. I don't need that transaction cost. I can own something for 20 years or 30 years. So what do you do about that? Well, it's not just us. It's the Canadians, the sovereign wealth funds in Asia and in the Middle East that are constantly looking at ways to create products that will do that. Some of the Canadians have done that by building their in-house direct teams. But even then, you find that challenge is that it's great to own a company for 20 years, but the team that found it or the team that managed it wants compensation. How do you monetize and how do you reward people? It's great for a family that might own their own private business because the founder can look and build the wealth and pass it on to the kids and you don't have to necessarily go to the bank and cash it out. But the investors want some way to cash that out. And I think even the Canadians are finding that's an interesting challenge on a 20, 30-year investment. Yeah. So you have all these tensions. You'd like to have more in private equity. The costs are high. And pricing is getting higher, but at the same time, you want to be long-term and you want to be a consistent player. How do you balance all of those challenges and decide today, here's what we're going to do? Antacids and aspirin, particularly a lot of aspirin, a lot of painkillers, ibuprofen. It's been a constant challenge. It's been frustrating because the compression on the returns and so you're investing now and you knowing that money is going to go to work for somewhere out around 2025. And you won't know until then whether this was a good decision or not. And that is inherent in the challenge. And we are having constant active debates internal and with the board about whether that is going to pay off. And I'm sure that's going to be one of the big discussions going into the asset allocation because we have some people who firmly believe it is and then others who believe it's not. And you know what the public markets are giving you. So it's going to be an interesting challenge. 
The dynamic now is we're going to stay consistent investor. We do want to pay attention to pricing, to the EBITDA multiple, and recognize that probably the 2015, 16, 17, 18, maybe even the 19 vintage year may not be great returns because the price multiple is so high. And we have told our private equity firms to be patient. They're sitting on a huge amount of committed capital that's not invested yet, dry powder. And we're okay with that. It's frustrating, but we're okay with that because we don't want them to pay up at these prices. We know it's very hard to grow a company when you're buying it at 10, 11 times earnings. I'd rather see them down at a more reasonable EBITDA multiple. So it's a question of investing over time. We are not going to ramp up dramatically and just throw money at this market as some have. We're looking at, for us, new ways beyond partnerships. And that's why we've developed this year the CalSTRS collaborative model, which is to find ways to collaborate with our peers who do have direct investment programs. I'm not going to create one. We realize that's where my business model is too flawed. I'm smart enough to know I can't do that in-house, but maybe I can team up with somebody who can. We're going to try and collaborate with also private equity firms and with other asset managers to see if there are better ways to build a buy-and-hold portfolio. Right now, today in America, there is a huge amount of capital going to work in private companies. And there's been a lot of debate about the fact that the number of public companies has shrunk in half. I remember when the Wilshire 5000 actually had 7,000 companies in it. Now you're somewhere just barely north of 3,000. We're fueling that, the pension industry, long-term investment group, because we're trying to take companies private. There's a balance there. Is that good for the public markets? Is that good for the public They're staying private because the cost of going public is a lot. We've had a lot to do with the cost of going public, of our demands on corporate governance. So life is full of tensions. We're living those and debating those all the time and trying to make the best decisions we can about how to invest in private equity, how to invest in public equity, where should the portfolio be balanced. We recognize that both of those is exposure to GDP growth. And so it's just different business forms and different structures you're going after. How many different private equity relationships do you have with external managers? In our case, it's actually fairly narrow. I have studied that for a number of years and uh, been a strong believer that really you want to be a large bite size with a few people. Some funds, particularly in, uh, near us and then here on the East Coast, have decided to take the index method and invested with hundreds of partnerships. And what you find is you get the average return out of private equity, which is actually below public equity. So with us, it's actually a fairly concentrated portfolio. We have 70 core relationships. We probably have about 200 in total, but many of those are not growing or or fairly static. But I would often say we have about 70 core, and that's why it's difficult. We really aren't trying to add to that number. So when we see a new opportunity, it's a question of where are we going to clean up the portfolio and not re-up in some of the funds, and which ones do we want to re-up with? So two of the more interesting line items you have in your reporting are tiny allocations, but worth talking about. One is overlay, and the other is innovation. Why don't you talk a little bit about each of those? Those are kind of the way that we try to manage the portfolio. So innovation was something that way back before 2008, It was the recognition that my staff is so busy at managing the assets because we're very lean. We're trying to run a very efficient operation. We didn't have the time to study new ideas, 
Plus, it was also the recognition back then that we we're seeing opportunities that landed in between the asset classes. It wasn't quite equity. I often point out convertible bonds have been around forever, but they're not quite debt. They're not quite equity. Who looks at them? And so I realized I needed to create an innovation team, somebody that could really sit around and put on lab coats and be the 3M lab to try stuff out. Does it work as advertised on TV? Wall Street is famous for selling us all kinds of fancy newsfangled things. And what I want to know is, okay, that's great. It might work at Harvard, might work for David Swenson at Yale, but does it work for our size and our governmental structure and rules? So let's test drive it ourselves. And that's exactly what this group does, is they do deep dive research on a variety of topics, everything from microfinance to global macro and everything in between. And some of the best decisions they've made, in my view, are the ones where they've come to us and said, no, we shouldn't pursue that at all. And then sure enough, nine months later or a year later, some horrible thing happens and it blows up. What are some of the examples of those? Well, I would point out microfinance, which has ebbed and flowed, but it was all the rage at one point. And then it became that some of the microfinance firms were really causing social stress and that maybe it wasn't the panacea that people thought it would be. And we knew that at our size, it was going to be incredibly inefficient. But it's an area, now we have a decade-long research file on it. So as it comes back, we'll take a hard look at it. Another area is life settlements. That has ebbed and flowed. Very interesting business. That's good, but no thank you. We don't really want to be investing in it. But we've done the research. We took a deep dive look at gold. Is it a commodity? Is it an inflation hedge? Is it a currency hedge? What the heck is it? And came back with a lot. And unfortunately, the answer is, For us, it wasn't any of those, but some of our peers have bought it. So a number of things that they've delved into that I don't want to discuss on the air because we'll get phone calls from people, but (laughs) that has actually been pretty helpful. But literally, we actually did a presentation once where they came up to the board with their lab coats and safety goggles because it really drove home the point. They're out there test driving all kinds of ideas. And in many cases, the goal is, one, does it reduce the risk of the plan? Two, does it increase the return of the plan? The Panacea is a product that would increase our return and reduce our risk, but I've said that's the golden goose and we'd all know about it if something like that was out there. And most of the time when they study something, they're already figuring out where it belongs in the portfolio because their job is to incubate something, test drive it, build it on a platform that if we want to build it out, we can. If it really does work at our size and structure, then to hand it off to an asset class to add it into the portfolio. What's an example of something that did make its way into the portfolio in a bigger size? Without question, low vol equities, which they test drove with the equity team. That's where you can team them up with different units as the research arm, people that have an interest in it, but just not the time. We looked very heavily at option overriding, and I've seen that covered call writing many times in and out of the portfolio. That didn't scale up. We did a little bit, but then scaled it back. Global macro is another example of something that, yeah, we had test-driven initially and then added it, not a huge amount, but ramped it up into the plan. So if you take the example of low vol, is this innovation team putting capital to work? Yes, absolutely. That's why, as you said, it's it's 1% to 2% of our asset allocation so that we can put capital to work at size and really then scale things up if we think it makes sense. And how much time did it take you to get confidence that it did work and would work in bigger size. We've given ourselves a three-year time period to really decide, Fisher cut bait, but not surprising, we're human beings. It's been hard to stick to that three-year time period because you grow something. Three years isn't necessarily, in this day and age, a market cycle. 
and you get to that end of the time period and you're still not sure if it works or not. So we debated and decided to get a three-year extension and see if it works again. That one thing that's on my mind all the time is risk parity. We've now been at it for five years and had some results. We see the math. We know it adds a lot of value as a part of the portfolio, but it's struggled in this environment. And so good example of something, because again, at our size to do something where it moves the needle, you're talking about $10, $20 billion like you would any kind of a major purchase. You want to test drive it. You want to see if this really works for you. That risk parity, I mean, do you look at it and just say, well, there's an argument that this is levered bonds and rates are going up. We probably don't want to do that today. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I've often argued that. I used to go on the speaking circuit and say that risk parity was like, you know, gee, I scuba dive. I take a lot of risk scuba diving. Maybe I'll take up parachuting to help diversify my life-threatening <laughs> risks. And it's more complex than that. And I realize it can add value. And we have staff that are firm believers in it and other staff that are not as strong believers. So we didn't throw in the towel. We're still test driving it and seeing how it works. And these kind of volatility periods actually help us decide. It is an interesting debate. I've seen plans that have ramped it up and it has helped them. And it's compelling when you look at, if you can soften your down drops, those negative periods, if you can just make them a little less negative, you compound faster, and the end result over time is dramatic. Think about it in life. If the bad times are just a little less bad, life would be wonderful. So that leads itself to talking about these overlay strategies. How have you done it? Overlay really is an outshoot of that, as I described, that asset allocation process. The board picks the long-term asset allocation. We've got interim targets, but we've realized that we really need to have a team that can look more intermediate near term and make decisions about within the ranges of the asset allocation, where do we want to tilt the portfolio? Should we be risk on? Should we be risk off? Back to my analogy of an ocean liner, as I said, should it be full sail, full speed ahead and party on the decks or should it be batting down the hatches and tie down the luggage? And that is our tactical asset allocation team, our TAC team that meets at least monthly, but as needed. We get external advice from a number of our different managers. One of the blessings at CalSTRS is because of our size, we do business with some of the smartest people in the world. And we tap into that to get their ideas and their thoughts about where they feel about risk on, risk off, different markets. And so what we'll do is particularly a good example you would think of is Brexit, where we have a natural constant exposure to the British pound and to the euro. We have a currency team, but within that, should we hedge the overall plan at the plan level? to protect against that. Do we want to be at a plan level overweight equity, overweight U.S. or overweight non-U.S. or underweight a particular region? So we're not trying to do very detailed trades. What we're trying to really do is do overlay trades that adjust and balance the risk of the plan. We recognize we can't time the market. So what we're trying to do is add about five to 10 basis points a year to the plan of adding value, which is a large dollar amount. But when you're looking at a $200 billion plan, many times, as I said, we have a negative cash flow. So we're an average net seller, not an average cost buyer. Therefore, we want to be a smart seller. So we're looking at that negative cash flow for the next year and planning ahead. Teachers work in the summer, as has been pointed out to me, but most of the time not being teachers. And so we actually have a dry period in the summer where we pay out benefits and don't get a lot of money in. And it's just a matter of planning ahead for environments like that. And so that's where we'll use the hedging in the portfolio and the overlay of the portfolio. 
And that five or 10 basis points you mentioned, presumably that determines how you size these types of positions that you want to take. That's really our risk budget. We are not going to try and achieve that every year. In some years, uh, we're actually going to be breaking even. But that gives us a risk tolerance about what we would do. But yeah, sizing the trades, it also is always a matter of conviction. For instance, I was very concerned about this U.S. equity market dating all the way back to last June. And so we started actually taking some profits out of the market and hedging it a bit. By July, that hedge obviously proved very painful. So we reduced it a bit, but we kept some of it on. Now we're thankful for that. So I wanted for this last bunch of topics, I want to talk about the influence that you're able to have because of size on a bunch of different things. I guess the first area is ESG. How have you thought about incorporating ESG into the investment program? Well, I always try to point out to people, we're the teachers of California. And teachers really do care about social issues and about environmental issues. So they are a very vocal group. We hear from them. And it's in the nature of our board. All the way back to the 70s, they have cared passionately about social issues and actually had a social investment policy back that far before other people talked about ES&G. And when you look at the three things, we've been at governance since the early 80s and had a very strong corporate governance unit. It's now 15 people, a budget of about $3 million a year that we spend on corporate governance. We got involved, as I said, in social issues back in the 70s, but then again in 2000. The board really took some strong social concerns into the portfolio. And then environmental really started up in about 03. And so it's been part of our investment process. In the older periods, it was primarily exclusion-based. But going forward, it's been more of a risk and return, an opportunity and risk-based strategy. So we actually integrate ESG into all of our investment decisions. Every part of the team, every investment manager knows our concerns about ESG risks, and we want them to be looking at those and thinking about those. I often point out that if you look at the typical financial analysis, it looks at the balance sheet, income statement, working capital. Those are all backward-looking documents. The real information is in the management discussion, the MDNA. Those are forward-looking statements. And when you think about ESG, those are really forward-looking risks. And management does talk about them, Unfortunately, it's too much boilerplate. We're trying to get them to disclose that better. But I can tell you, talking to CEOs, they do look at those, but they call them operational business risks. And the words get too much in the way. But credit managers, private equity firms, insurance companies absolutely pay attention to those long-term operational business risks. And that's what we're trying to focus into our strategy. So it's really a way of looking at forward-looking at it. So it's ingrained into our DNA. It's part of who we are. Yes, we are very vocal in the world because we think it needs to be other investors. The CFA Institute's already making that part of their curriculum. There's no question in, I'd say, Australia, the UK, Canada, people understand it, and in Europe very much, and they integrate it. The USA is probably being the most stubborn. Even here in Mizuno, my good friend that runs GPIF, the $1.4 trillion plan in Japan, constantly talks about being a universal owner. It doesn't good to pay a pension check to somebody 40 years from now if the earth is scorched and they can't live on it. What are the other social hot-button issues you've tackled? It's a constant challenge, I would say. When you look at ES&G, the governance issues have been around a long, long time, and they still remain. They seem to reoccur. Executive comp, 
board diversification. And you look at the environment issues, those are right in front of us. Climate change is a current near-term issue. The social issues really do ebb and flow. And it is often difficult to figure out where they're going to come from. I did not have construction firms and a border wall on my agenda four years ago. and wasn't even on my mind as something to worry about. And yet now we have people asking us, well, why do you own those construction companies? Well, they weren't involved in this before that, and they have been around 100 years. So those issues very much tend to be issue-specific, pop up. We end up having to really drop a lot of things and focus in on those. So it's a balance of when you think about climate change or governance, those are critical things that are long-term in nature versus important issues that arise from time to time. So most recently, we've been in the press, the discussion about private prisons. It's no surprise that most of the people in America were absolutely up in arms with the immigration policy and now the current immigration crisis in San Diego and Tijuana. So those kind of issues just really get people's attention. And that's where the debate becomes of what's the best way to bring about social change. And I'm very loud and clear that divestment is not the answer. Divestment's an investment decision that you don't want to be exposed to a company because you think it has too much risk in a particular area. We have proven time and again for the last 20 years that divestment does not bring about any social change. And people have to realize boycotts are generally ineffective unless you can get everybody involved in them. And what I'm impressed with is the power of social media. When this country wakes up and cares in social media, boy, CEOs pay attention quickly and respond. So for us, it's been more about engagement, a dialogue, building a network with other investors around the world, because then companies will listen to us. But you mentioned about our size. Yes, we're big. We're the number two fund in the USA, a largest education-only fund in the world. But when you look at long-term capital, we don't even rank in the top 20. And I can't point out enough to people that the world is awash with long-term capital. It's just not in the United States. It's mostly outside the borders overseas. You've got Norway, Japan, several of the sovereign wealth funds, over a trillion dollars of assets. So it's not like these funds are 10% or 20% bigger than us. They are seven times our size. So when I go to many conferences, we're tiny. We've just been around a long time, so we have an important voice, but we're tiny. So trying to bring about those kinds of changes, I think what we can do as institutional investors is really try to be proactive, set a standard, a framework for that discussion. But then when the social media kicks in, then companies will pay attention. Our most active example right now has been firearms. We took a position uh, after Sandy Hook to divest of firearm manufacturers that made weapons that were illegal in California, and those companies would not even engage with us. They wouldn't even take a meeting to talk to us as shareholders. So we were left with no choice but to divest because the board felt that was too high of a risk. But we're concerned about the entire manufacturing change, particularly retail, finance, distribution. So we teamed up with a total of $5 trillion of institutional asset to develop firearm principles and really go out there and engage with the entire distribution manufacturing chain to say, look, let's take a responsible view. And my best analogy, because this has been a hot button for some people, but my best analogy is when people started to talk about seatbelts, the auto manufacturers absolutely fought it. They felt that a seatbelt in a car would make people think their cars were unsafe. Today, we wouldn't even give it a second thought. We'd probably be absolutely upset if we got in a car that didn't have seatbelts. 
So we think that this is a product that needs some responsibility, needs some protection around it, and the technology is already there. Good Lord, we unlock our phones with our thumb. It's not that hard. How'd you go about gathering $5 trillion of assets to work on this? That's been a blessing, I think, due to our name recognition, our brand image, which we've worked very hard. Culture in the inside the investment office is very important to me, and I think that's what drives us. The brand image of Calsters, and I would say the fact that I've stayed there a long, long time, has built up a good reputation in the industry so that when we call on people, they know we're serious about it. We'll put our effort behind it. It was a blessing in that I happened to be at Harvard University, met up with a fellow who's there who was a former CalPERS Global Equity. Christy Wood had uh, run the Global Equity portfolio, so I knew her for years, and suggested, you know what? Back in South Africa, you had the Sullivan Principles. In Northern Ireland, you had the McBride Principles. Why aren't there principles for firearms? Well, it turns out there were the Sandy Hook Principles, but nobody had really picked them up and done stuff. And so I went through... I'll show my age here. I went through my Rolodex. I went through my Outlook file and called on a number of peers and got five firms to meet. Harvard was nice enough to host us again at the business school. We really touched a nerve, and these people were willing to form a group, write these, vet it. We spent the summer going around the country trying to get other institutional investors to sign on and finally went public here in November. Now they're live on the web, and we're actually already gathering uh, firms. Somebody signed up just yesterday. So we're going to gather other institutional owners to engage with these companies. And I have found when the CEOs are focused on this issue, they're absolutely willing to listen, and they want help. And this is an answer. This is not divestment. Don't turn your back and ignore the problem. Let's actually engage and make it better. Where can people find it on the web? At firearmprinciples.com which is under the CalSTRS, but it will be in its own website soon. So you've also done something to gather a lot of allocators in something called the 300 Club. Talk a little bit about what that is. One of my mandates for my board, it's in my duty statement, is to be an industry figure, to be a global CIO. And I'm involved in a couple of groups, one called Triple C and another, which had been around for a while, called the 300 Club, which was really founded by Hermes. As a way, because they felt that in the 08 crisis, we heard a lot from Wall Street, we heard a lot from the banks and the brokers, but we didn't hear from investors. And so they wanted to create a voice where institutional investors could, in essence, be sort of the canary in the coal mine. We could speak up when we thought there might be a danger or risk out there in the market. They came up with a clever name of the 300 Club, the 300 Spartans. I joined, but I made it clear I wasn't just going to risk my life for the markets. (laughs) I certainly don't have the abs to be part of the Spartans. <laughs> so ambitious name, and we're only about 40 strong. So it's not that we're up to 300. But it has really been one of the few global groups that has come together where you have a European chapter, a North American chapter, CIOs from public funds, from corporates, universities, from money managers who get together and just talk about markets and things that are important to them and then write white papers. And we publish them out there so that it's not necessarily a firm taking a position, but an individual saying, you know, I see something and it seems kind of strange. And it's really helpful to discuss the academic side of it. And that's what I'm really trying to push in our North America chapter is teaming up with universities to give them practical research ideas. We get a lot of good theoretical research out on investments, but we need some practical research. 
is the reduction in the number of publicly traded companies. What's the long-term impact of that? What does that mean to the public investor? What does that mean to the private investor? I've often raised the question of these dark trading pools. Is that a positive or is that a negative? Clearly coming off the fraction system to the decimal system makes a lot of sense, but trading inside of a microsecond, is that efficient? Did that actually add liquidity or does it hurt? Those are good academic questions that we don't have the time to research, but we can put out there for people to question. And where are those papers? Those papers are on the 300club.org website. People can have access to them. We just redid the website, so it's much more user-friendly and easier to see. The North America chapter is growing slowly and surely, but CIOs that listen to the podcast are more than willing to contact me, and we're constantly taking members. The challenge is to get CIOs to write white papers. It takes time suddenly to be an author. All right, Chris, let's turn to some closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Cycling. And that's actually a family activity. My wife is a very active bike rider cyclist. She's on uh, three different clubs. I'm only uh, loosely on one. But for health and for happiness, we love to bike ride. So we'll do rides. California is a beautiful place. Sacramento is a blessing with some great bike trails and then the Sierra foothills to ride in. But yeah, we've had the chance to ride in Tuscany and, and other places. It's a blast. And there's this aphorism about cyclists, that there are two types of cyclists, those that have crashed and those that will. Absolutely. Oh, there's no question. Where are you in this spectrum right now? Oh, crashed many times. <laughs> My staff often loves to talk about it because uh, it was two days before our business meeting in July. I caught my pedal on a corner and actually smacked my head and knocked myself out for five hours with a concussion. So my wife is still mad that nobody was missing me after about three hours. <laughs> a separated shoulder, scars all over my uh, shoulders uh, because I'm trying to protect my head now. So no, you will, as you said. It's not a question of if, it's will. So yeah, road rash comes with the territory and that's the downside. What's your biggest pet peeve? You know, I think part of the biggest challenge to me, uh, as you probably caught earlier in the cast, I'm a planner, so it's hard for me to be spontaneous. My wife likes to joke that at one point we lived in the state of Washington where you never know when it's going to be sunny or rainy, so she would tell me to plan on being spontaneous. I was okay with that. <laughs> so is the pet peeve the lack of ability? Yeah, it still always gets me every time people suddenly have a new idea and want to deviate. I'm a planner by nature. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? I think my biggest investment pet peeve is when people fall in love with their investment idea. And it is easy and it happens. But so often people mistake, and I'll hear this phrase, well, that person's a nice person, or I like that person. And my point is, you don't actually have to like the people that manage our money. They just have to make us money. In fact, if we don't like them, it's a little bit easier because we're a little bit more objective. So it's a constant challenge, and you've seen that with analysts on Wall Street that fall in love with a company. I've seen that with investment officers that fall in love with an asset manager or fall in love with an idea, trying to be objective and remain unemotional. Yeah. Investments, sadly, money is emotional, but we have to be absolutely unemotional as much as we can. What reading do you almost never miss? That one's easy. Actually, the Daily Bible, I start every day by reading that. On the investment side, I'm a big fan of Institutional Investor. I was sad when they stopped doing the print magazine. I've got old copies back into the 80s. But CIO and definitely Pension and Investments, that really is uh, the daily website and then also the magazine because it really helps them keep track of what my peers are doing and thinking. And then I'll use that to reach out to them and get into a dialogue about something. 
What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Their number one was to give more than you take, whether that's to an organization or to society in whole, is to definitely give back more than you take in. All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? This is always a tough question because I hear it so often from people, which is take more risk earlier in life. And that would be my answer. I don't know how I could convince myself to do that back then. As always, once you're toward the end of your journey, I'm 60 now, so I'm getting toward the end of my journey and I can look back with that. Part of it is the comfort of I made it to the end of the journey. It was unknown back when you're in your 20s. But I'm pleased to say, for instance, my youngest daughter and her husband are about to take a leave of absence and go to Europe for three months. That's the kind of thing I think that absolutely makes sense to explore and reach and consider. This day and age is such a challenge with the fast pace of technology, the fast pace of change. I also would say, if I could give that advice back to myself, is don't ever stay in a job you don't like. It is so hard to change jobs and so fearful but it is so poisonous to your health and your soul when you stay in a bad situation. People always want to stay in and change it. And I try and have that dialogue, you know, like any company, I've got about five to 8% of the staff that's not happy. I don't want them to leave, but I always say to them, for your own sake, find something you enjoy more. It's tried to say, follow your passion, but I really think that's what people have to do because your work will be easier. It's still going to be work, not a hobby. We don't get paid for our hobbies. It's work, and that's why they have to pay us to do it. But if you find something you actually enjoy, you'll probably more than likely be a huge success at it. Chris, terrific advice. Thanks so much for the time. Been great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one and see you next time.